0: city streets and the quiet town boulevards the scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation here you've joined the team on a thread of evidence where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations dr ron is a nationally renowned forensic criminologist who leads the nation's finest forensic death investigations team your host dr ron martinelli will lead this investigation. You know people view officer-involved shootings as a very critical subject in the United States and the news media is full on a daily basis with officer-involved death cases but what we hear most all of the time are officer-involved shooting cases. Truth be told we have death cases that occur almost on a daily basis in the United States, that are custodial death cases. That means that a prisoner, a pretrial detainee, an adjudicated inmate, convicted inmate, in a jail or a facility, uh, such as a corrections prison facility, dies during police custody. And that's the topic of our discussion today, and with me, I couldn't think of anybody better to have then Bob Prevost who serves as our homicide and corrections expert on our Forensic Death Investigations team. And as we go down the Rhine River in Europe for today's program I've got Bob with me. Bob, how you doing? Good afternoon, thanks for being on a Thread of Evidence.
1: Good afternoon Ron, thanks for having me and a beautiful view today out the window. And as we we head
0: towards uh, Vienna in the country of Austria uh, I just want to have a discussion on some of these jail deaths that you and I work because uh, we've been together for many years now. We've worked a number of these jail death cases and I know you and I both have something to share today together for our listeners.
1: Yeah, you know, these cases don't typically receive a lot of publicity. They're uh, an inmate uh, murders another inmate or it's an overdose or a suicide. And uh, so typically the press doesn't, doesn't Get, we don't get as much publicity out of these because they're not usually an officer involved directly in what happened. And there's not a cell phone, and there's not a crowd around. Yeah, and there's, and it's, there's it's, not a big controversy until we get involved when this thing starts heading to the Civil Rights Court, and then we start getting involved in all the background of why this happened. Could it have been prevented? What was the role of the police? Um, should, the, should the prisoner have been where the prisoner was or maybe housed somewhere else? uh you know what was the background of each prisoner, and why were they put together? And this goes to the to the uh, problems of classification of inmates. You don't put two inmates together that don't belong together. Now that's always not going to be known to the officers. Uh, the best way to do that because they may not know their background. So, you know, we get these cases like that where you know terrible things happen because of the fact that uh, inmates are put together that really don't belong together.
0: Well you know and these are not exciting cases and they're not criminal cases when we get them I think every case we've ever had so far has been a civil uh Title 42 1983 a uh, federal tort claim against a municipality. And so, again, these things are rarely uh, shown on television uh, because, again, there are, you know, few witnesses, nobody with cell phones. It's not an exciting case. But that doesn't mean it isn't any less serious because we're dealing with a death case.
1: Correct. And in, in, these, in these cases, uh, you know, they will be investigated. And typically what will happen is... Uh, Uh, you know the officers are cleared of wrongdoing uh, criminally because it's shown that they did not directly participate in what happened Uh, and and uh, then after that there's a civil suit filed and then we really get in depth uh, in our investigation of, of what really happened and we look at a lot of things that aren't looked at criminally and It becomes becomes a very complicated issue for a jury to look at and make a decision.
0: And so just like with our officer-involved shooting cases, our forensic death investigations team is post-incident. So what we're really doing is we're taking a look at all of the evidence, all of the circumstances, statements, facts, and forensic evidence, uh, including medical evidence. And training indicia or training documents and we have to try to reconstitute this event and try to determine more likely than not what happened and for full disclosure we work all sides just like experts should so a lot of times we're defending agencies and officers and other times uh, we're doing more of the civil rights litigation uh, on behalf of uh, an attorney that has a plaintiff a family and a state and they're trying to resolve this issue and bring closure uh, to the death of the inmate. Hey
1: Bob, I know you've got a case. Why don't we start out right away with one of your cases? Sure, and just to give you a preface uh, here's the things we look at when we get a case and it doesn't matter what side we're, we're representing, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, policies and procedures of the department, training, uh, internal affairs investigations, we're looking going to look at state jail standards, supervision, um, uh, any kind of video recording, any forensic evidence that we we can get on what happened, autopsy reports, we're looking at a lot of a lot of different things and typically these involve thousands of pages of documents that include uh, prior depositions, anything that went to court, the backgrounds of the inmates involved, and, and, and these things are very time consuming, they, they, they are very involved Uh, To reach a conclusion on our part of what we think happened. So Uh, this
0: is. Yeah, and they can take years to resolve as the different elements of discovery surface and we're allowed to review them. And, you know, again, for full discovery uh, or disclosure, uh, what we do as experts is we attempt to reconcile. What does that word mean? It means that we're given a mound, literally a mound of evidence, sometimes almost a truckload of evidence, and we have to parse it all out and we have to compare and contrast how officers have been trained and, and contrast that with, what did they do during the course of the time span of this incident because some of these things go down quickly uh, some things take a couple of days and some things can take weeks uh, to uh, to bubble to the surface uh, before the you know the poop hits the blower so to speak and we have uh, an inmate that that is dying in custody
1: correct and so let's take a look at this uh, case we'll just talk about a, a one small incident here Um and this occurred in a, in a midwestern area of the, of the United States. So here we have a typical uh, jail facility that uh, holds maybe uh, four or five hundred people, uh, inmates, and a a uh, inmate is brought in and one of the first things they do when, after they book them is they, they send them through what they call classification. And when they're running through classification they're looking at things, of gang affiliation, any kind of background that would tell the staff, what type of people they don't get along with. Uh, you know, if there's somebody else in the jail that's, uh, uh, you know, looking to kill one of the inmates, you know, we don't want to house them together. We don't obviously want things like Crips and Bloods together. Uh, you know, there are two opposing gangs. So we have to look at all these things when we house them in this particular case. Um, this guy was brought in. He's, he was a very disruptive individual and, uh, so they kind of move them from place to place because the other inmates complained about them. and you know it, it, jail's not unlike anywhere else. I mean uh, you know you go to sleep at night and a lot of these inmates have to get up in the morning, go to court and they can't be kept up all night by another inmate causing a lot of destruction I mean a, 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 a lot, disruption, a, a lot of disruption because um, you know they, they want to get some sleep, they want to go to court. And the staff doesn't really want to have any problems with, uh, you know, uh, inmates fighting with each other during the night. And so when they classify these people, they, they try and put them in a, in a place. Well, this one particular inmate had a problem with uh, just not getting along with people. And they put him in different housing units. And they, they finally found one that worked for a while. And uh, eventually he was causing more problems. So they put him in basically a one-man uh, cell. So, typically what happens when an inmate is, after an inmate's booked in the jail, they go through a process called classification. And in this process, they find out if the inmate has uh, gang affiliations, uh, uh, other inmates that potentially he won't get along with, and they will try and separate these people for whatever reason it is. Uh, and how do they find this stuff out? They'll, they'll, they'll ask the inmates, you know, what's what your gang affiliation? They'll look at tattoos, they'll look at his prior history, um, sexual orientation sexual orientation is a big thing and they'll ask, uh, you know, any staff comments about knowledge of this person from the street you know, and eventually what you want to do is house this person where it's going to cause the least amount of problem so in this case uh, this person was housed in, in a, what they call a pod and a pod is maybe uh, six, uh, two man cells you know, in one little cluster each jail is different so this person was causing a problem and they moved this person from pod to pod and uh, he was having a problem adjusting. He was, he was very disruptive, keeping inmates awake at night. And so they ended up putting him in a one man cell. Now each jail in the United States has varying amounts of single cells and they have varying amounts of room in, in, in these cells so that where they can put this person. So they, uh, we don't know the background of why he was moved at that particular time into a single cell, but he was, which is fine, but there was no write-up done. So in other words, nobody really knows how he got into the single cell. Who put him there, why, what happened, the circumstances. And so he, uh, and according to their policy and procedures, you can only spend 30 days in isolation that way uh, before they have to make a decision to either keep you there uh, or put you back out in what they call the mainstream, and back in the pod. So in this case, th- about 30 days goes by, there's no additional write-ups about him being disruptive, misbehaving, not following the rules. So a decision is made to bring him back out because they couldn't really hold him in there according to their policy and procedures. And so they put him in a pod with another, uh, in a cell with another inmate. And again, the deputies didn't know when they put him in there, uh, they, they checked the other inmate, as much as best they could. They don't, they didn't see any gang problems or any other problems. So they put him in there. Well, apparently during the night he became disruptive again. And, uh, the inmate, uh, and the other inmates in that, in that pod, uh, were being kept awake because of this person's yelling. And, you know, inmates are not unlike anybody else. I mean, they have, some of them have to get up early, go to court. They want to get a night's sleep. And, uh, they they don't they don't like the disruption. So anyhow, the the one inmate ended up just getting a, getting into a fight with this guy to tell him tell him to knock off the noise and ended up killing him. He just basically beat him and choked him to death, and he wasn't found until uh, about six o'clock the next morning. And so now that's what we're presented with. Okay, you, you have an inmate charged with murder of another inmate uh, in a cell and we know the basic cause was he was causing a disruption. Now we have And the cause of death is murder. And the cause of death, we know, is murder. They, uh, they inter- interviewed the inmate. What happened? Well, he was making too much noise, and, I, and so I just kept hitting him until he stopped making noise, but I didn't kill him. I didn't know he was going to die, you know, the, the, the usual defense. So, uh, so now we have to put, put all the pieces back together. Now we have to backtrack and find out how these two guys ended up together and why this guy, uh, the victim, uh, the, the, the inmate that died, ended up there, and and why he wasn't put somewhere else, and, and could have anything, could anything have been done differently? And you know, Bob, let me just chime in here for just a second, uh,
0: because what uh, is part of the corrections, uh, I guess, context. Meaning, you know, one of the things that police officers and supervisors and administrators have to be aware of is that once a person becomes a prisoner, once they lose their freedom and that person is in custody, whether it's a patrol officer, whether it's a jailer, uh, there is a something called a special relationship that's developed between the inmate or the prisoner and the police entity. And so one of the questions comes into play, do the corrections officers have an obligation to protect the inmate from other prisoners? Uh, The inmate can't go anywhere. He's locked in a cell. You know, just like a police officer that that takes somebody into custody on the street, that special relationship is developed because if something happens, you know, they're handcuffed, they can't seek medical care. And so the special relationship issue with regards to classification becomes a key issue. Uh, topic of discussion in these
1: lawsuits. Absolutely. And, you know, in this case, I mean, every jail has very similar rules about how they do count, okay, when they count the inmates at night, um, you know, how they inspect the cells, how often they do their walk-bys to see if everybody's okay. It is, It's a relationship where the police are required to ensure the safety of the inmates, and that's that's still, inmates should not die in custody. They should, uh, you know, they should not die in jail. And so a lot, there are rules and regulations that that uh, tell you how to do all this. Well, in this particular case, this inmate was brought into the cell at midnight. It was after count, and so he's placed in there with this other inmate, and the deputies make uh, their hourly checks and their statement was we did not hear any fighting any commotion we go by we look in the cell we look through the window they're both in there they're laying down typically everybody's asleep uh, at, you know that time of night two or three in the morning so in this case uh whatever happened uh did not happen in front of the deputies so by morning uh the in, the inmate who was arrested for murder? He had, he had actually gone back to sleep, thinking that he had just hit this guy hard enough where he's passed out. The inmate who died is on the floor, but a lot of inmates sleep on the floor; it's not not that unusual. And he didn't see anything, any anything that was suspicious. And until morning, when they when they woke him up for breakfast, and they didn't come out, uh, then they went in and they found out the inmate was dead. So this is the this is the type of case where. You look at your policies and procedures, you look, at, you look at your state regulations, and you look at how you do things, and were they justified in putting those two inmates together based on what they knew. And this whole case is going to revolve around what did they know about these two inmates at the time they put them together, if anything. And, and the jury's going to have to look at all the, all the information that's available. They're going to look at the officer's training, and internal internal affairs investigations that they've had anything that all the medical information and make a decision uh in this case now these cases like i say do not typically get a lot of publicity because on the surface it was one inmate killed another inmate and it's not it's it not involving the police but it but it is involving the police and it is involving a lot of their. Their their police practices on how they how they conduct themselves in the jail, and, and this is going to be a very important case. You know, in some cases, uh, the jailers are the only people that are being sued in the
0: entity, but in other cases, other municipalities that fed the prisoner to the correctional facility can come into play too, and they can also be defendants on a future uh, federal. You know, lawsuit or, or tort action, and when right. we come back from a threat of evidence. Uh, Bob, let's you and I talk about best practices and and uh, what some of the standards of care are for correctional facilities in the United States. You're listening to Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist and death investigator and homicide expert, Bob Prevot, on a threat of evidence. I'm Dr. Ron Martinelli,
2: and I'm Linda Martinelli.
0: As former law enforcement officers, we know that your life and the lives of those you love and work with can change in an instant when you encounter an active shooter.
2: Unfortunately, in today's world of uncertainty, encountering an armed active shooter can have deadly consequences. That's why the key to survival is training and preparedness.
0: And that's why we want to invite our listeners to seriously consider taking our Response to Active Shooter training course.
2: Violence can happen to you anytime and anywhere and when you least expect it. Having a response and survival plan and engaging it can be the difference between life and death for you or a family member.
0: Our Response to Active Shooter courses are customized for a corporate, school, church, restaurant and small business environment at a reasonable budget that fits your needs.
2: So don't put this life-saving training off because you don't think it will ever happen to you. We call those people victims.
0: Our Response to Active Shooter instructors are all nationally renowned tactical law enforcement experts who will guide you through the life-saving protocols you'll need to survive an active shooter event.
2: So be a victor, not a victim. Go to responsetoactiveshooter.com to learn more today.
0: Remember, that's all one word, responsetoactiveshooter.com and be safe out there. Let the silent voices be heard. It's the
1: rallying call that started it all. AmericaOutloud.com for a wide spectrum of programming for world and political news, societal and
0: cultural stories, law enforcement, our military heroes, and much more. News blogs, informative podcasts, and entertaining videos. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Outloud Talk Radio. So, Bob, I want to talk to you about you know standards of care and what they refer to some people refer to as best practices. Well, there really aren't best practices. There is just a determination as to whether the officer acted in a reasonable manner, which was consistent with his law enforcement education, you know, training and experience. But let's talk about you know some of these standards of care because I know as a jail manager and also as a former uh, manager of the internal affairs unit for a very large
1: municipality, you handled these cases on a regular basis. Correct. Let's just take one small aspect of, of what we're talking about: here at police practices. Let's let's talk about the policy and procedure for doing uh, count and for doing uh, cell checks okay now that sounds like a, a pretty easy type procedure uh, you know at a certain time in the day or night we will go around each cell and we'll make sure everybody's in their cell and we want to make sure nobody's escaped it's per, it's a pretty easy concept the, the the policy and procedure where I worked was at night and we did our we did our uh, count late at night we would have everybody stand up and say their name we wouldn't just walk by and count bodies on beds we would make them stand up and say their name so right up at the front of the cell so standing right of the cell i can see if they can I, I can see if they can stand on their own i can i can make sure they can talk okay and and what i'm doing is is testing to make sure that they're they're, they're okay they're healthy and then back to bed. Now, some jails don't do that. Some jails, they walk by and they see two bodies in a room and they keep going. This case that I just talked about was one of those cases where they just walk by and maybe their policy and procedure says, check and make sure the inmate is breathing. Uh, Depending on what their policy says, did the deputy do that? Was, was, Was there proper custodial care for that inmate based on their policy and procedure? If if they don't have a policy procedure, that's something the administration has to deal with. Okay, because the deputy's just doing what the deputy's been trained to do. Right, and you know Bob, let's go into this for a second because you
0: brought up several key aspects of uh, which we could call negligence, right? Correct. And so we know that when we get a, a federal lawsuit or a state lawsuit, there are areas of negligence that are claimed and and there's basically six areas of negligence there's negligence in appointment in other words you didn't hire the guy the right way there's negligence in training negligence in supervision negligence in entrustment what does that mean that means that you trained a person to do a particular thing and maybe even equipped them with some equipment or safety equipment and so you entrusted after testing the employee in that particular piece of equipment and said he was okay to use it, that's what we call entrustment. Then there's uh, negligence in direction, which means, and that's for administrators Mm -hmm. who design policy, who author policy, who audit policy, and, and keep the policies maintained or not. And then there's negligence in retention, which means that you had an employee that did something wrong, you didn't use the appropriate progressive disciplinary process, and that inmate, or I'm sorry, that inmate, that officer continued to do wrong things and you kept him on the department and subsequently he was responsible for something that bad that happened. So there's those different areas. So you've talked all already about if you don't maintain policies... That could be an allegation of negligence and direction.
1: Oh, absolutely. And and when we work these cases, we look at things like uh, uh, video evidence. Okay, most jails have video cameras all around the jail. And if I'm looking at a logbook that tells me a deputy checked all the cells and stopped at each cell and determined each inmate was breathing, and I look at the video and I see him walking by every cell and not even stopping, there's a problem. So so if, (laughs) if we get the ever get the trial on this thing that deputy is going to be asked how could you possibly tell if somebody was breathing when you did not even stop to, to see the chest rising anything any evidence of them breathing how could you determine that how could you possibly know if they were still alive and they have to answer these questions and, and that's part of the reconciliation process
0: Correct. that experts like you and I do we've got in this case We've got a corrections officer that said, hey, I walked by a cell and I could tell he was breathing, but now we have video evidence that he walked past the guy's cell really quickly, so how do we reconcile that? Was it possible to see that guy breathing or hear him breathing when you walked past his, his cell 20 miles an hour? Correct. You know, or not?
1: And, and, and I'm going to go back to their training records. How, how were these deputies trained? I'm going to go look at other video from other pods And see how in other words is the practice of this jail to do it in a negligent way every time and i can i can get a pattern of that and say it isn't just this one deputy that, that didn't do it right it's it's the entire jail system that's been trained to do it this way it's negligence and obviously, nobody's fixing it. Well, you know, it's
0: interesting that you use that keyword pattern, because what we look for in an allegation that's called a Monell claim, and you're our Monell expert, is that the uh, plaintiff in a case will allege that the municipality had either a formal or an informal custom in practice that was so bad, so egregiously negligent, that it violated the constitutional rights of the inmate. In other words, it was deliberately indifferent. And I think it's interesting for our uh, listeners to know and understand that there are two different types of suits. There's a state suit and a federal suit. In the federal suit, negligence is not an issue that can be litigated. But a Monell claim accusing the agency and their administration of deliberate indifference through negligence absolutely can be alleged.
1: Correct, and and deliberate difference can also take on uh, in the form of uh, this person's been investigated three times for that same thing by Internal Affairs, he was disciplined three times for not stopping by the cells, and he did it anyway, he kept doing it anyway, and now somebody has died. The administration should have known, they could have known, that this was, this was predictable. This was predictable that this would happen. And you
0: know, you, you raise a couple of other issues that are really important with regards to Monell claims. Because if the agency investigates this, so in other words, Internal Affairs investigates this, and they say... Uh, it's okay everything was okay or internal affairs says wait a minute no this was a problem mm-hmm. and this this uh, officer had been repeatedly remediated for this problem and he continued to do it but the but the sheriff says well that's okay we're going to let him go I trust this guy that could be uh, termed ratification mm-hmm. and that is a huge issue the ratification of bad behavior is a what a custom in practice of the agency that shows deliberate indifference towards the welfare of the inmate
1: and and typically when they do an investigation of a jail death they don't get into this kind of depth with background training internal affairs policy procedure they do not get into the background of everything that happened and this is this is our job this is what we do and i can guarantee you if i'm if I'm representing a city or a county, the other side, the plaintiff's side, is going to know all this stuff. Through discovery, they are going to get all this information. If police officers think that, uh, you know, the plaintiff's attorneys aren't entitled to things like emails, uh e-mails, uh, emails, Internal Affairs Investigations, all everything that's related to this case, they are going to get all that information and they're going to use it against you. Yeah,
0: they're going to get memorandums, uh, they're going to get transcripts, they're going to get any audio and video, and they can go way back as long as that officer was an employee for that agency. And that's why it's so important for administrators to assign Internal Affairs Investigators to take a look uh, at the uh, way that the officer or officers uh, comported themselves during the course of this incident, and did that match up? Was that consistent with their education, training, and experience? Now, I want to bring up one more thing and let you run with it, because you and I have been doing this for a number of years, and I, I think we are always surprised, when, because we have a, a footprint that goes all the way across the United States. We have cases in all the states. We find some states that don't have any best practices. They have no policies and procedures. They've got no training manuals,
1: and that constantly surprises me. It, it, it's amazing that you'll you'll do an investigation in a jail death where, you know, an officer seemingly uh, did something wrong, and and you go through the case, you investigate it, and then you say, why didn't the officer do this? Why didn't the officer do that? Or why didn't the administration have a policy for this? And then you look at the state jail standards and you find there aren't any so what guide does that give for that particular county to uh, build house uh, uh, inmates in a jail train deputies and and have any semblance of, of good police practices when there's no guide provided to them by the state and and we I recently found this out of within the last couple of years of a state that had absolutely
0: nothing and you know what's what's interesting is you and I both from from California, and we were uh, you know used to dealing with something called the you know the California Board of Corrections and standards and training for corrections and uh, our state has uh, regular state statutes uh, for corrections it's referred to as Title 15 and uh, for jails besides Title 15 specifically it's in chapter 10 that deals with jail operations and liability and it requires because I'm one of the only instructors left in the state that still teach it uh, it requires managers to have two weeks of uh, corrections training, and it requires uh, corrections officers every other year to get eight hours of training, of update training, and, and there are states, literally in the United States, that have zero, no
1: statutes, n- no standards, and, and very little, if any, training. Well, for example, you know, I don't think anybody is expected to memorize a thousand pages of standards. But if you're going to run a jail and you're going to have nurses administering medication or doing doctor exams or doing uh, medical exams when, when an inmate is booked, there has to be a procedure on how to do this. In other words, are you going to let deputies dispense medica- prescription medication? Are you going to let um, people bring in medication for inmates without it being inspected by a doctor or pharmacist? How are you going to regulate this is, is the question. And, you know, you mentioned the
0: classification Uh, component of jail admittance. And I just want to talk about the component that comes just before classification and that's something that we refer to as triage during the admittance process. Well what is triage? That means that an officer from the street will bring in a pretrial detainee. What is a pretrial detainee? That's a person who hasn't been, he's been arrested, but he hasn't been adjudicated, he hasn't been convicted. Uh, And so Where basically we get a prisoner off the street who's been arrested. The police officer, the deputy, takes him into the jail, and there is a process where the jail is trained to go through to admit that person into the jail or to not admit him. So a couple of the things that we look at is we look at the the physical status of that person. How are they physically? How are they mentally, you know, psychologically? And how are they medically? Because a lot of these people have pre-existing problems. They have pre-existing medical problems. They have pre-existing mental health problems. And then we want to check to see if the person is suicidal or if they're homicidal. So we want to find out if they if they're expressing any homicidal uh, uh, ideations or expressions or any suicidal ideations because once we find out that that might be the case. Let's say we've got an inmate that has a pre-existing problem such as alcoholism, such as AIDS, such as uh, uh, you know hepatitis, some sort of sexually transmitted disease, something like that. Uh, maybe they've got a pre-existing mental health problem where they're taking psychotropic medications. All of that has to be logged. Uh, these uh, pre-trial detainees have to be physically inspected. They have to be medically inspected. Uh, psychologically uh, examined, to determine if they're going to be kept or not. If they Are they under the influence now? Do they require, like I said, a particular type of, of medication? And what is the regimen for that medication? And if they pass through the admittance, then it goes uh, to one of your areas of expertise, which is the classification of the
1: inmate. And that's correct. And, and, you know, unfortunately, most jails are not... Uh, Big. In other words, you may not have a full-time classification officer uh, there to help you, and so you, as a deputy, have got to rely on your policies and procedures on how to classify people. You're going to look at sexual orientation. You know, with the opioid epidemic we have right now, if these people come in, what kind of medical treatment do they need? What kind of medical personnel do you have at your disposal to help you? And you know, these become major problems, and you don't, you do not want to house these people together. You have somebody uh, coming down off of heroin. Uh, you know, it's a heroin addict. How are you gonna How are you gonna treat them when they start um, uh, having real bad problems once they're in jail because they're not getting their heroin anymore?
0: Yeah, and you know, there's a fine line between who's going to be admitted and not being admitted. Right. Some people that are under the influence uh, need to go back to the hospital and they need to go through detox right. and reevaluated before they're booked again. Other people are coming down off of something like you said it could be meth it could be heroin uh it it could be ecstasy it could be bath salts or something like that it could be simply uh, alcohol you know and alcohol is a huge problem i've had a couple of cases like that that turned out very poorly you know for the inmate but but as you were correctly pointing out bob uh once we decide to, to accept that inmate then, you know, you catch them, you clean them, so to speak. And so now that is when the special relationship between corrections and the inmates is formed, and now all the responsibilities are towards the correction staff. Now, you mentioned something that was key because you said that, hey, you know, there's all sorts of different jail facilities. Some are large. Uh, You worked with one of the larger ones, but there's some real small ones. And they don't really have all the facilities that they need for these inmates that are experiencing problems and they don't have the resources in other words you know a place like los angeles county or uh you know rikers in new york or something or chicago you know cook county they're going to have on staff psychiatric you know board certified psychiatrists psychologists they're going to have doctors hell they're going to have an infirmary but uh you know slippery rock arkansas you know that's got 15 jail cells uh, they're going to have contract personnel or
1: call-in personnel well I, I've even seen uh, small jails in rural areas where the dispatcher was the person who was watching over the inmates at night with a with a with a video system who's totally not trained in, in any of the in any correctional management at all and and so you, you know I, I understand budgets are tight I understand that you know there's problems but when you get a jail death, and the first question: well, Who was supervising these inmates? Well, we had a dispatcher in there. Well, what was a dispatcher's training? None. Right. What, but, does, what does the dispatcher know how to recognize uh, somebody coming off of heroin uh, suicide uh, suicide background? Uh, no training at all. Well, what do you think is going to happen when that lands in civil rights court? Yeah, because they're going to find that that person
0: was undertrained. You know, you absolutely have to have board certified medical tech people, uh, RN. Uh, PSYs, Ds, M- MDs, board-certified psychologists, dealing with these issues. And it's okay to have people on call, but the key thing is that you do have to call them, and they do have to respond, and they might have to respond in a timely manner because the way the inmate might be acting, there is an exigent circumstances situation. And, you know, my my opinion is is that if there is exigency, we don't accept him in the jail and we take him uh, we get we call that deputy we call that officer back and said look we're not going to accept this guy because we don't have the resources to house this guy and to medically examine him he needs to go back to the hospital he needs to be stabilized he needs to get a release from from medical treatment from the hospital and then we'll take a look at him again and then we might be able to accept him and and sometimes these people
1: fall through the cracks well especially in this day and age when the amount being spent on mental health has, has decreased to almost nothing. And these are the people that are coming into our jails with serious mental health problems. And deputies are not equipped to, to properly evaluate their, their mental status. And sometimes if they're, if they're acting and they have certain symptoms, they need to go for a psychiatric evaluation. And you know, when we come
0: back from our next break on the threat of evidence, you and I both have a couple of cases that we'd like to talk about. Now that we've lined all this up and our listeners have a pretty good idea about the triage process and classifications and what the standards of care are, let's try to bring out some real cases again and let's reconcile that for our listeners so they can see what forensic experts like you and I do for a living. You're listening to Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic a criminologist and homicide and corrections expert Bob Privo, on a thread of evidence.
3: Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep, but it doesn't have to be that way. award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. We're back on
0: a thread of evidence with forensic criminologist Dr. Ron Martinelli, and my co-host today, Bob Privo, who is our Forensic Death Investigations team, uh, Homicide and Corrections expert. Bob, let me unpack one of my cases that sort of outlines what we've been talking about in our first couple of segments. And, uh, you know, whenever we're talking about uh, the issues of uh, liability, there's two factors that always comes up in the plaintiff's complaint. And that is one of foreseeability. And the second one is a likelihood of occurrence, especially if someone has been noticed either by training or staff is telling somebody that they did, you know, don't do this. (laughs) I wouldn't do that if I were you, which is always good advice. So I had a case of a person that was a drug abuser and heroin was the drug of this person's choice and he goes and he's estranged uh you know from his wife and he doesn't have any permission to be in her apartment and lo and behold he goes into her apartment and he burglarizes it and he's actually burglarizing it to get some oxycodone that she had and of course that's a morphine uh, base uh, with oxycodone it's a huge uh, drug of abuse in the united states of a huge drug abuse problem with prescription medication so uh and she had some you know serious uh, medical problems, which way she was being prescribed with Oxycontin. so he knows it. He breaks into her place and she comes home just as he 's walking out the door, and she realizes, holy cow, the front door's been forced she 's got the burglary in progress, so she calls uh, the local police department, who happens to be very, very close on scene, shows up he 's still there, she is still there. And when the officers detain him after listening to the ex-wife, he doesn't run away. She says, hey, the guy's a a drug abuser, Uh, he's a heroin fiend, and I'm missing a bunch of oxycodone. So she says, you ought to search this guy. Well, what happens is that the officer doesn't really search this guy. So now he he cuffs him up, searches him for guns, but doesn't search him for the presence of drugs. Now he's in custody, so the officer can actually do what's referred to as an intrusive search. He can pull out hell if he wanted to strip him down. He could strip him down. He doesn't do any of that. He just checks him for for guns and knives handcuffs him, puts him in the back of the car. What was unique about this case, Bob, at the beginning of the case, is that the patrol car actually has internal cameras. So it's got a dash cam, but it has another camera that looks right back in the prisoner compartment behind the driver. So what we see in the video is we see the officer driving the car, and we see the prisoner in the back of the car. And while the officer is driving the guy to the station because he's going to transfer him to another officer for some reason, I never did understand why that was taking place. Usually, you know, we grab him, we take him straight to the jail. He decided not to do that. But anyway, he's driving this guy back to the station, and he gets on the phone, and he's making a personal call to his girlfriend. And while he's making this call and distracted, He's got the, because it was hot, it was in July, he's got the windows rolled down in the back, but of course they're barred windows so the guy can't escape. But what you see the prisoner doing, because he was a skinny guy, is he took his handcuffs, put them through the front of his feet, brought them up to the front, reaches into his pocket. You can see all of this on television while the officer's making a call to the girlfriend. And you see him throwing things out the window, which of course is going to be drugs. And the officer notices the movement and he turns around at one point and he says, what are you doing? And the guy goes, well, I'm not doing anything, right? Well, the guy's got his hands on his lap, so obviously he had them behind his back before, so obviously he was doing something. What's wrong with this picture? And, yeah. and so the officer says, well, you know, we're going to the station. We're going to research you. Well, while the right after the officer says that, the guy is now freaked out about some, throwing something out the window. He can tell the deputy or the officer knows something about what he's doing. So what he decides to do, when he sees that the officer is distracted, he, he grabs the rest of the drugs and you can see him swallowing the drugs. So now we know that this guy has swallowed whatever drugs he had left in his pocket. We don 't know how many units of you know of uh, of oxycodone, but we knew it was oxycodone yeah. that 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 he ingested and now he drives all you know he drives to the station they search him he 's clean with drugs, and now they take him to the jail and Obviously, by time he gets to the jail, now it 's another half an hour going down the road and now he 's starting to show the effects. Of being under the influence so they take him through the triage process and they they check his blood pressure and they check his heart rate and it's it's pretty low because obviously it's a depressant right it's a pretty severe depressant and then what they do is they decide that he's good to go classification takes him and puts him in a single cell in a pod okay so Figure a couple of more, three hours, four hours going by. Now, what was interesting about this case for me is a lot of this case was video evidence. And so uh, in this pod, and I think you did a pretty good job describing earlier what a pod was, it's a series of um, cells that uh, sometimes are square or in a circular type of area. And we have a control room uh, somewhere in that pod. And in my case, it was actually up in the ceiling. And they could look down and see all of the fronts of the cells. That's the idea. And they also had speakers, two-way speaker intercom system, where the officer up in the control room could listen in, to see how the inmates were doing or the inmates could press a button to call the attention of the control officer saying hey i need this or i'm not feeling good or can you do this for me well this uh, because they were um, over manned i guess with inmates they decided to use a room that wasn't normally used to be a cell and they can and it was a closet it was actually built as a cell But they used it as a closet most of the time because you couldn't see into the cell from the control room. You could just see in about two feet, but you couldn't see the whole cell like everything else. Well, what do you think? They had too many inmates in the jail, so they had this room prepared for this guy, and they put him in there. And what do you think happens? He dies. Mm And the, the jail deputy, who was the control officer up in that control room, he testified not only could he see the guy, but he could hear the guy breathing. Now, now was there supposed to be another deputy walking through there? And there's supposed to be another deputy walking through there, but guess what happened? They were undermanned, and so the control guy was supposed to get out of the control room every hour, and he was supposed to do the walk, Right. And their policy was that um, you had to be, it was Title 15, because it was California, you had to be able to do a verbal and a physical check of the inmate. And our records showed, because it's all video evidence, that he never went down there and walked, uh, walked the circle to check all the inmates. He simply got lazy, and he did it from the control now, room. Now,
1: if I recall from what you said about this case, he said he could hear the guy breathing through the speaker. Exactly. you went there and you did a test. Well, so how, right, what do guys
0: like us do? Yeah, we go there and we we test the theory, right? Right, because we have to do a scientific testing. So we used uh, uh, one of our experts, Greg Stutchman, who's our video audiologist, Mm -hmm. and we put Greg on that call, and he came down with all of his sophisticated hearing, you know, listening instruments and his scopes, Mm -hmm. and we actually tested the ability of somebody to breathe and talk in that room, from the control room. So we did it both ways to reconcile whether or not what the deputy's statement was that I could, that I could hear him because he also said he could see him, but the hearing part was why we brought Greg in. Could I hear the inmate? And Greg's test forensically, scientifically proved that he could not hear the inmate if he was breathing or not in that room. Now the vision part uh, I handled... And i've got a special set of video glasses so what did i do Uh, we had greg lay down in the room uh, as the deputy had said that he saw the inmate laying in there and he said yeah i could see the inmate sitting up from time to time everything was good well i sat exactly where the deputy sat but i had my glasses on i activate the video glasses And uh, the deputy, the same deputy, actually happened to be up in that control room that day because the county council asked the deputy to appear so that he could make sure that I was sitting in the right place, and I swear to God I could watch him turning green in the gills because he saw that I could definitely tell that you could not see more than the end of the feet of the inmate. And that was the end of that story. And what happened was, to, to make a long story short, when I was deposed and I gave out all, all that information and I actually showed the video and we had the audio evidence, uh, that case went nowhere after the deposition. It, they, they, the county ended up uh, settling that case for $2.5 million.
1: Well, because they know as soon as a jury sees this, and, and, and a jury is just an average person you know, uh, trying to reconcile information, and as soon as they can't do that, that's the end of the case. Yeah, it really is. And, and juries, you know, are going to just make the following assumption: the deputy lied in his report.
0: Yeah. Now, you know, people uh, might find this interesting. Our listeners, uh, people like you and me, we cannot give testimony that someone lied. That's a what we call the trier of fact jurisdiction. We never say that that person was lying all we say is we did scientific testing and the scientific testing and the evidence that we acquired did not support the statements of one party or, or another party. And that type of um, testimony evidence is accepted in a court of law. But you know, that wasn't the end of this story because what happened to that agency that had arrested that guy and how about that officer that transported him? Because he that agency was sued too. Well, guess what? Before I even gave my deposition uh, in that one jail case, that city, after looking at the videos, they just signed a check. And I think their check was about $400,000 for that officer neglecting his duty and not paying attention to his prisoner because that's what he's required to do.
1: That's, uh, and, and that's what jurors are looking for. Yeah. They're looking for that one thing that says you know, the officer wasn't being truthful or the officer was negligent or the department was negligent. Yeah, exactly. And if they find out any of those things, your case is over, and that's why the, that's why most of these cases subtle without a jury trial. Yeah,
0: but you know what, what's really kind of neat uh, about what you and I do for a living, and, and why I just uh, really love uh, the science of forensic investigations, is that this is the kind of stuff that you really don't see on TV, and these are the quiet professionals working behind the scenes and using forensic science to show more likely uh, what happened than what didn't happen. And so we're using uh, someone like you as our you know, corrections uh, specialist and our Monell claims specialist. We're using our uh, video audiologist were using me as a uh, training expert and another corrections expert, but one with more of a scientific background. Mm-hmm. And I handled part of the medical issues of that. But it was all a team effort, and uh, we brought together a, a very compelling argument. Mm-hmm. And when the county saw it, they just folded you know, and, and sign the check, right. and so that family w- was able to get a little bit of closure. But you know, Bob, I really agree with what you have to say, uh, and it's my philosophy as well. Nobody should die in custody. You know, right. nobody should die in custody, uh, and and they do. But the vast vast majority of these cases can be prevented.
1: When I when I first started working in jail, I had a very good training officer, and the first thing the training officer told me was. We don't care why they're here. They're a human being. They're, they're, they're here because they've got a trial pending or their sentence, they're sentenced, but nobody deserves to die in custody. They're doing their time, and when they're done, we expect them to walk out of here. Yeah, exactly. But, you
0: know, and and again, full disclosure, uh, we handle a lot of cases on the defense side as well. And some, like I said, you know, people do die in custody. And what happens, at least in the cases that I'm seeing, which are psychomedical emergencies, and I'm involved in that as a medical investigator, is that the deputies or the correction staffs are doing everything that they're supposed to be doing in a manner that they've been trained, but there is a disconnect between the uh, contracted medical staff and what the, the deputies and correction staff are doing.
1: And sometimes the disconnect is between the, the line staff and the administration. Uh, for example, uh, we had a recent case where the jail had a, a recreation program, and they had a, a basketball program for the inmates. Well, when they first started this thing, they had some inmates fighting with each other, and they decided to suspend the uh, program until they did a little more research and, and, and got it so that, uh, you know, that we hadn't, they hadn't enough staff to actually supervise them. Well, then they decided, the warden decided to operate this program again, and the staff kept telling the administration, we don't have enough staff to do it, we don't have policies and procedures in place to do this safely. They, they told the chain of command all the way up to the top, don't do this. Well, they did it, and it was a very predictable result. Uh, an inmate killed another inmate. So we start looking at this thing. We start looking at their staffing levels. And because of why? People said there's not enough staff. So I looked at their staffing levels. And right on the staffing level, it says what the minimum staffing level should be on that given day. And it, I'll just give you a figure: thirty. Okay. So it takes thirty deputies to do the minimum amount of work to to, to get through the day. Okay. Then they. So on the day they started the basketball program again, they had 30 deputies. So they're at minimum staffing. Okay, and now they're required to run this recreation program on top of that, which they all told the word, don't do that. Cause I, wouldn't, have enough people.
0: I wouldn't do that if I were you. you? Think,
1: what do you think a jury's going to do when they see this and say, well, you didn't? you had just minimum staffing to get what you, what you need to get done, then you added this, and somebody died. Yeah, because we didn't have enough people to supervise what was going on.
0: And that's exactly right, because that again underscores what we've been talking here, and we add one more thing. So we've talked about foreseeability, we've talked about the likelihood of occurrence, but now we talk about the issue of notice, because the administration was noticed that they were undermanned, they were at minimum staffing, they admitted to that, and now they want to bring in an extra program that exacerbates the minimum staffing program.
1: Not only was this unsafe, but from their prior history of this program, people got injured because they didn't have enough staff the first time around. Well, why would you repeat your mistake?
0: Now, and now we've got a dead guy. So look at all the, the factors that forensic experts uh, have to take a look at. We not only have to take a look at the scientific issues here, but we have to take a look at the training issues, the competency issues, the policies, the procedures, the best practices, the different areas of litigation. I mean, there's a lot on our plate, and uh, I think we seem to do a pretty good job of it.
1: And and if we don't do it, the other side will. And what, what you don't want in any kind of case, I don't care if it's criminal or civil, are surprises when you go to trial. That's right. You know, like I tell the
0: attorneys, I hope you're like me. I only like surprises twice a year, Christmas and my birthday. correct. <laughs> well, listen, what a great conversation on, on a couple of good cases uh, for our listeners to understand a little bit more about the forensic of jail death cases. You're listening to Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist, and my co-host today, our homicide and corrections expert, Bob Prevost. Tune in again to a thread of evidence and follow our Forensic Death Investigations team on another case when we unpack the evidence and bring you the truth behind death.